Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 9. What is deeply impressing me this morning is how much we need the Lord and how, how much we need to hear from God, how dependent we are on Him and for everything, for every breath and also for life and everything about it. And as we read today, let's see what God has for us in His Word. We're going to read Matthew nine thirty-five. Through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Lord God, we come to you today, needy people, hungry people, waiting and, and wanting a word from you, needing a word from you, needing comfort, needing direction, needing wisdom, needing a touch from your compassionate hand and needing fresh knowledge that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that the issues of our lives that we're dealing with even right this moment are in your hands. So Lord, as we look at your word today, we trust as always that you will open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, and that you would do all of this for your glory and our good. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it's easy to be a little confused about what it means, the ramifications of being a Christian. Being a Christian means more than just being saved from the wrath to come, though that is huge when you think of the context. God has a purpose in saving us. He is outworking us to will and to do His good pleasure and to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we would praise the glory of His grace. God's purpose for us involves helping others know the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. We are sent by God. We are sent by God on mission, on assignment, on a journey of rescuing the perishing. And we exist for His glory. And we know we are to honor Him in all that we do. And He is glorified when more and more people praise the glory of His grace. So we are sent by God. The idea of being sent comes right from the text today in Matthew 9 and verse 38 and also in chapter 10 and verse 5. He, He tells us to pray that the Lord will send out workers into His harvest. In in chapter 10 and verse 5 we read that the twelve Jesus sent out It comes from a word apostolo, and it means 
to send from, to send forth on a very specific mission comes from two words, apo, which means from, and stele, which means to send, to send from, to send on a specific mission. We know from Matthew's gospel that the word disciple means learner, and apostle means sent one. We get our word apostle from that Greek word apostello. Now think with me about the Sermon on the Mount for a moment, which we took quite a while going through. It showed us what it means to know and to follow Jesus. What we are going to see from the end of Matthew 9 here through the end of chapter 10 is a sermon on mission. What it means to be Christ-centered people in an increasingly hostile world. What it means to be sent by God. Motivated by compassion and sure of our calling and displaying godly character and exercising caution and commanding courage and embracing crucifixion and receiving God's righteous rewards. Now before we go any further, I just want to say it's been quite a while since we were together on a Sunday morning around the Gospel of Matthew. Dates back to July of this year. Several months ago, we took a bit of a hiatus from the Gospel of Matthew. But let me just say that after 64 sermons so far in Matthew, up to chapter 9 and verse 34, I hope it is like seeing an old friend you haven't seen in a long time. Not hard to catch up. You go, back, you go right back to where you were the last time you were together. Recently, I have been reacquainting myself with Matthew's gospel, reading and listening to it read, and, and I want to do a bit of a uh, reacquaintment with you, uh, with Matthew as well, so let's just do a bit of your view. If, if you take your Bibles and just kind of leaf with me from Matthew 1, starting at chapter 1. Now, the, the, Matthew's gospel was written by the Apostle Matthew, the former tax collector. He was addressing a church that was representative of the newly birthed Christian community of faith who adhered to Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. It's focused on Jesus as the sovereign king of the universe, come to earth to rescue his chosen ones and inaugurate his kingdom. Matthew is basically a manual on being a disciple of Jesus. shows what the gospel does. God, in Matthew, shows what the gospel does in transcending ethnic and economic and religious barriers, bringing together both Jews and Gentiles to form a new community of believers in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. So chapter 1, we see Jesus' birth and background, and many people skip over genealogies, but the people in Jesus' family tree shows us that God uses unlikely people and does unexpected things for his glory. In chapter 2, we see God's protection and providential guidance of God the Son through his early days. In chapter 3, John the Baptist is paving the way for Jesus. We see Jesus' baptism, where we also see the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit make an appearance In chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus. We see him calling his first disciples. And then, 
You come to Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the, the, the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher ever, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what it means to follow Jesus, and spoken to his followers and all who will listen. And then in chapters 8 and 9, nine miracles showing Jesus' authority over things like nature and demons and sickness and even death. Three discipleship vignettes blended in for good measure in chapters 8 and 9. And then here from the the end of chapter 9 through chapter 10, what you see, you could call it Jesus' second sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. A sermon on mission. The mission of Christ and His followers. And this is where we'll be for the next seven weeks, the Lord willing. What it means to be sent by God. Today we're going to see how Christ's heart of compassion inspires our compassion for the lost. We're going to see what Jesus was doing and how he responded to what he saw and what he said to his disciples and then what we ought to do about it. In the immediate context of our passage today and Chapter 9 and verse 34, we see that the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. They were saying that he was doing what he was doing in Satan's power and not God's. They were accusing him falsely. It's interesting to see what Jesus does in response. He did not answer back with words, but with deeds. Later on, he will give a greater explanation of the power with which he was doing what he was doing, but here he silenced them by showing God's power. He just keeps doing what he does. Be a good model for us as we face opposition or evil to keep doing what God calls you to do, overcome evil with good. But what was Jesus doing? Let's look at verse 35. What was Jesus doing? He went out to the people is what we see, Verse 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. And he did three things, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness and every affliction. He met people at their point of need. And he was interacting mainly with the people of Israel. But he show, it, what this shows is the geographical range and the variety of things that was involved in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the, there's a cross-reference here that is significant. It's in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Look with that at, for a moment. He went throughout all Galilee. So the difference here is that uh, Matthew 4 stipulates that it was all of Galilee. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And his fame spread, and it speaks of what happened there and how people came from all over to see Jesus. Good news travels fast. But what happens is in Matthew 4, that was a a, a bit of a summary beginning the Sermon on the Mount. Now we have the same type of summary beginning the Sermon on Mission. And what was Jesus doing? He was teaching. And we know what he was teaching because it said he was teaching in their synagogues. He was teaching the Old Testament scriptures, the Bible. He was also preaching the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming the good news of his appearing 
and his impending death and resurrection. He was also healing his all-powerful touch, doing mighty deeds. Some of those deeds are recorded in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Jesus' ministry involved teaching and preaching and healing. And he was going about all the cities and villages. And we think real small. When we think that, when I read that in the Bible, I think, well, that must have been several cities and villages, nothing like where we live today. But Josephus, writing one generation later, spoke of Galilee. It was small, 70 by 40 miles. But according to Josephus, Galilee had 204 cities and towns, each with at least 15,000 people, which, if accurate, would make the population around 3 million. Huge. It would have taken three months to visit them all if you, if you went, took two a day. Whatever the case, it's safe to say that Jesus was busy. He was not idle. He was busy. And he was going all around. And there were a lot of people. He saw crowds. How did he respond? Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, big word in Matthew, crowds, multitudes, uh, masses of needy people. And what did he do? He had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. He saw their condition and he felt something for them. The Greek word there for compassion is splagnizomai. Sounds like a, a Greek dish. Let's go have some splagnizomai later after church. Well, what it means is to be moved inwardly, to feel deeply, to be emotionally moved on someone else's behalf. Compassion. Pity. And because of that feeling, to act toward them in a way that meets their needs. Our English word literally means to suffer with someone. When one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. We're, we're suffering today with, with D. Baker. We were suffering months ago with the Blassingame family. We were suffering months ago with the Berrigan family, with Dora and, and Luz and, and, and D and, and others. When, when it's, it's just like when someone you love goes to be with Jesus or, or, or maybe they didn't know him and you feel deeply for the family. You, you ache with them. You cry for them. You cry with them. You, you do what, what Christians do with those who hurt. You you respond compassionately. Jesus saw crowds, multitudes of people. I don't know about you, but I, I like to stay away from big crowds. I remember when I was a college freshman back in 1980, I, uh, my college plans were very haphazard. They were, I'm going to Long Beach State. I lived in Downey. Long Beach State wasn't too far away. I wanted to live at home. I told you I was weird. And so I showed up the first day of class and didn't realize it was a campus with 40,000 people. They should have told me. There's no internet back then. You had to go there to find out. So I went there on the first day. Big crowd. This summer, Angela and I got away for a couple uh, night or two down in San Diego. While we were there, we heard that the uh, World Sandcastle competition championship was going on in in in, uh, in imperial beach so first thought was who'd want to go down there with three hundred thousand people and see that 
Uh, it'd be cool if they weren't there, but the sandcastles were, you know. Um, but, but nonetheless, we drove down, and we took our bikes, and we, we took about a five or six mile ride down and, uh, with the masses of thronging people and met some neat couples along the way. But 300,000 people? We don't really like crowds like that, but we went anyway. And, and uh, we looked at those sandcastles and put up with all those people. I was one of them. I have a similar feeling when I go to a ball game. Thousands of people who need Jesus are all there. Think of the UCLA and Texas game yesterday. 100,000 people who need Jesus. I think about it. They're all yelling and screaming about making a touchdown. I do the same thing. But I think about it because I think, think about all those people who need Jesus who are there. All in one place. Jesus, seeing all the people felt for them he he felt something for them he he cared for them he wanted them to be led appropriately to him but that is not what the people's leaders had done instead they had used them and abused them they had mistreated them for their own advantage and so he felt compassion for them because the bible tells us here that they were harassed and helpless or harassed and helpless they were they were put down it's really interesting the ESV says chose two H words harassed and helpless then you got distressed and dispirited and and weary and and worn out but they were harassed they were they were distressed they were weary literally it means to be skinned that wouldn't be too comfortable would it they were experiencing distressing difficulties And then they were helpless as a result. They were dispirited. They were downcast. They were worn out. Literally, they were face down. Means to be prostrate due to drunkenness or a mortal wound. Basically, they were unable to care for themselves. Now, while this is our condition as sinful humans, unable to do anything for ourselves in terms of salvation, their sinful condition had been aggravated, not helped by their religious leaders. Those who were supposed to help them were hindering them, harassing them, putting them in harm's way rather than than leading them to the truth, putting heavy yokes on them that they were unwilling to to lift themselves. The spiritual needs of the people were more crucial than their physical needs. Jesus had just gone out healing every kind of disease and every kind of affliction. And now he sees their spiritual condition and he has something to say about it now he saw that they were shepherdless sheep sheep without a shepherd and the common theme in the bible there is a common theme of of shepherds and sheep lord is my shepherd i I shall not want psalm 23 begins there are prophecies against shepherds in the Old Testament, negative prophecies against what they were doing wrong and what God was going to do about it. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we, we read um, stark words for the shepherds. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, Should not shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. 
The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The stray you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. But with force and harshness you have ruled over them. And they were scattered because of it. And God goes about saying how he will shepherd his people. Jesus comes on the scene and pronounces himself the good shepherd. John chapter 10, the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. First Peter 5, we read to the elders to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Jesus saw the people as shepherdless sheep. Modern example of that would be any religious system that requires people to jump through hoops, to follow their rules, to, to, to adhere to a system, to gain approval through their works, to get to God by works. Islam and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and many, many other groups perpetuate a system of good works to earn standing with God through those good works versus the gospel message of those who would believe being saved by Christ's good works on the cross. During Ramadan this year, our local paper uh, featured short articles written by various Muslim people and um, one of them wrote that they were so glad to be fasting and praying because it gave them assurance they were getting closer to God and uh, closer to heaven, gaining God's approval through their good works. So they were happy to do it because they had been told that this is what was going to get them to heaven. Saddens us. We, we, we have not discussed but compassion on those that have been mistreated to the point of believing lies. There are some so-called Christian groups that ignore the gospel and live by law, putting yokes around people's necks and expecting them to do certain things rather than simply rest in Jesus and take his, his easy yoke upon them. Sad deceptions uh, all around, radically opposed to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, where a person died for his enemies so they could go free. But Jesus saw the need and he responded with compassion. He felt for the people. And then what did he say to his disciples? Verse 37 and 38. He said to his disciples, and it's it's interesting, these are the disciples, and in chapter 10 and verse 1, he called to him the 12 disciples. Verse 37 is, is signifying a larger group of followers. And he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's what he says to his disciples. He instructs his people and he says, there is a plentiful harvest. There's a a good crop. The harvest theme is common in scripture. Especially in Judaism, it's very common. One, one rabbi in, in AD 130 said this, The day is short, the task is great, the laborers are idle, the wage is abundant, and the master of the house is urgent. 
Now, Jesus refers to harvest later on, in the context of his return, where the harvest time is of judgment. But here, the word plentiful indicates that this is, is a harvest of saved souls that he is referring to. He has purpose to save some, and he is in the midst of working out his plan to bring them to faith and repentance and growth and ultimate glory. And he says there aren't many workers. Maybe he's thinking of the shepherds of Israel that that beat the sheep. There aren't many workers that are going to be about that right now. And at that point in time, it, it stands to reason he was gathering his first followers. There certainly were not many workers for his harvest of souls. Same as true today in in another way many are wrapped up in their own concerns and not concerned about the things of God not interested in spiritual things those that God has saved often do not engage in the, the same compassion of Jesus nor his mission and it is not negotiable, it is not an option this is part of the picture of following Jesus so what he does is he he says this, he says, so you ask God to send workers out. Here's God in the flesh saying, you ask God to send workers out. That shows us a couple things. God selects his own servants. They're not self-appointed. He selects his own servants, and he knows who they are and who they will be and who he has chosen. But, but here's the amazing thing. He invites us into the process of, of him gathering his servants by asking us to pray and it shows us that God uses the prayers of his people in fulfilling his plans he is asking us to be so compassionately involved that we want what he wants interesting that that word for beseech or beg literally means to to bind something to to, to be shackled with. He's asking us to be so completely involved in, that we want what he wants and we bind him, ourselves to him in dependent prayer, seeking his will and glory. But those who were supposed to help didn't. And so he's saying, pray, pray. And really, this is simple. This is very simple. What we are to do is basically do what Jesus did in dependence upon him. Like Jesus said, what are we to do? First of all, what we are to do is be praying. He said to do it, so we go and do it. Now you think, well, that's not big enough. It's, it's boring. It's time-consuming. It's, I could be out doing something. Jesus says, pray. First pray. do exactly what Jesus said to do um, and by the way this prayer is just as needed today as it was then when I in my children's pastor days I, um, when I was a children's pastor I, I used this verse all the time and I, I, the interesting thing is I, I, I used it in a good way but it's one of the applications but didn't really uh, understand it as, I think as God wanted me to because I saw it a bit short sighted I used it this way. Well, we don't have enough workers to work with kids at the church. Let's pray and ask God to send out workers. Now, that's a very good thing to do. A very good thing to do. But that's not the main point of this. That's an application of this. God's getting to something here. We should ask. 
We can apply this in so many ways. Pray before you go into any endeavor where you're, where you're uh, presuming that you're going to be used by God. Pray first. Be praying. And, 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 and as you pray, because here's the thing, as I used to apply this, and, and, and by the way, it, it worked really well. It's amazing. You pray and God sends. And we would have reams of people volunteering for ministry positions at the church because I mostly prayed. Now, I also went and told people I was praying and uh, asked them. You had to get there too, okay? But I first prayed, and I prayed earnestly. And I believed that it said that, that, that we should uh, pray earnestly, and, and I found out that that word means to beg. And I begged God to do that, and he did it. Over and over and over again, I saw it happen right before my eyes, and I knew it worked. But here's the thing. You can do that and, and still not have your heart broken for people. You see, what, what instigated this, what, what inspired this was Jesus' compassion for people. So ask God to break your heart for people. You say, well, I'm feeling a little bit cold-hearted. Well, ask God to break your heart. You pray that prayer, he will. He will. Ask God to send workers who will be compassionate and help rather than hinder people towards him. Beseech, ask, beg. I mentioned it already, but the Greek word there is deomai, and it's from, the Greek, from, from a word doe, meaning to bind or imprison or put in chains. It means to want something so badly you beg for it. That you bind yourself to the person you're making request of. That you put yourself under their will. That you state your intentions to do whatever they want. To do this with humans is called slavery. To do this with God leads to the greatest freedom. Being slaves of Christ is a better freedom than any. I remember when I was younger, I had some really good examples of compassion. My mom and dad. My parents were, are still excellent examples of showing compassion. And here's the thing. They poured themselves out for me and my two sisters to the uttermost. And while they were doing that, they never neglected us. While they were doing that, they displayed so much compassion for people in need. My mom would make meals for Meals on Wheels and would volunteer hundreds of hours and help others in any way she could. My parents were known for that. My dad would help um, kids in our church that didn't have a parent or needed a bike. He'd go get a bike for them because he was compassionate toward them in part because he knew what it was like to grow up without a parent and to not have some of the things others have. So his heart broke. To this day, my dad prays, and when our family gets together, he prays for all the children, all the little children in the world. His heart breaks for kids. When I think of Jesus' instructions here and, and the response God wants, I think of, of, of Isaiah. Isaiah 6. He's this magnificent vision of the glory of God. He's laid low because of the vision of the glory of God. And he, he confesses his sins. And, and then he hears God saying, who's going to go? And, and who are we going to send? And he says, I, I want to go. <laughs> Let me be the one. Send me. I'm right here. You've got to love that kind of enthusiasm for the mission. And by the way, his mission wasn't going to be easy. 
So first of all, like Jesus said, we've got to be praying. But like Jesus did, we've got to be looking. We've got to be looking. Verse 36 says that he saw the people. He saw them. We've got to be looking for opportunity wherever we are. We've got to be patient, be wanting and, and waiting to be sent by God. Trust God to, 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 to provide in his perfect time because he always does. Rest in him, wait patiently for him. It's interesting that people you go to may assume they're going to be mistreated. They might be flinching when you get there because the people before had shown them a bad example. How many people do you meet that says, I don't want anything to do with the church because of how Christians have dealt with me, how Christians have treated me, how Christians have cheated me or ruined their, uh, their example by doing something. So the people you go to may be wary of you. But, but I know it's so easy to view people uncompassionately, if that's a word. Sometimes based on stereotypes or fear or simply hatred. I remember, I remember going on a trip to Atlanta once to go speak at a conference. And I had been warned as I was um, flying in and, and going to take the public transportation downtown to, to beware while you were on the public transportation. Beware. And so me, I'm a naturally wary person anyway and so i got on the public transportation and i i'm alone and a man gets into the car which i was in the train car the subway car whatever it was i don't think it was it was above ground in atlanta but anyway um i remember looking at this man warily looking at him very suspiciously he he looked mean he looked he was bigger than me and he, he looked, I thought he's going he's gonna to rob me because I, I had heard that there were gangs and other dangerous things happening on, 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 on this, this transportation system. And so I was looking at this guy and I was, I was bracing myself for some kind of attack or something. And I'm looking at him, I'm keeping my eye on him. So um, I didn't talk to him. But finally I nervously asked him a question, you know, try to break the ice a bit. And... Uh, I nervously asked him a question. He turned out to be a working family man on his way home from work. I had thought all these things about him. But what labels do you put on people unfairly? You, you see them and you think something of them and then your compassion goes out the window and it's either hatred or judgment or, or categorization. You do it in the church as well. It happens, doesn't it? Max Lucado wrote this great children's book called You Are Special and uh, it's one of my favorites and it's about a little wooden guy named Punchinello who was a make-believe Wemmick who lived in make-believe Wemmick land and Wemmicksville and uh, it's a place where everyone spends their time uh, giving people stickers either gold stars or gray dots and if you do well you get a gold star if you if you do poorly you get a gray dot well, Punchinello was uh, not a good Wemmick, and so he got all gray dots. He was covered with gray dots. Everyone thought ill of him. Everyone thought badly of him. He was no good. Okay? One day he met this, this, this uh, young other Wemmick uh, named Lucia, and she had no stars or dots. And he asked her, what's going on? You know, you have neither. He says, because anything they put on me doesn't stick, because I care more about what Eli thinks than anybody else. He says, well, who's Eli? Eli is, is, our, is our maker. He's the woodcarver that made us. You see the connections, you know. She cared more about what the God figure in the story thought than what people thought. But it's interesting the kind of labels we slap on people unfairly. 
And compassion goes way out, way out the window. None of the labels of worth people put on people ought to stick because we care more about what God thinks. We must look beyond the labels to the worth that God puts on us and others. You could basically say it this way, worthy because human. Worthy because human. Worthy because made in God's image. What do we do? We say, well, uh, no, they're not our type. Oh, no, we can't go to them. Oh, uh, they're scary looking. They smell. I don't know what. They talk funny. I don't like the way he looks or she looks or whatever. So we... We insulate ourselves from any type of true compassion. That's what I do. So maybe you're sitting here today and you go, I don't feel so compassionate. Well, I'm going to say it again. Ask God. Ask God. See, he says pray and, 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 and beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That prayer first and foremost must be, Lord, send me. Lord, send me not, hey, uh, Lord, please send someone else. You know what happens when you do that, right? You get sent right away. See it in the Old Testament several times. Uh, Last thing, we're to be praying and looking, but also we're to be serving. Serving. Verse 35, go back up to verse 35. What was Jesus doing? He was going out to all the cities and villages. He was teaching and preaching and healing. He was doing something. Where are you now? What do you find yourself doing on a daily basis? You got a job, you, you got a school to go to, you got no job, you got no school to go to, you got something, you have something. You have nothing or something, but that's something. What is it that got, where, where, where you are? And, and, and so where you are, serve God there. Just serve God right there. While you wait on where God's going to send you, work. Do what God calls you to do right there. Be like Jesus. Overcome evil with good. You know, there's this Christian cliche that, that says, uh, God can't move a parked car. You've heard that before. God, God can't move a parked car. You gotta, you, gotta, you gotta be moving so God can, can move you. Well, actually, God can do anything he wants to do. He's moved plenty of parked cars. Not your valet, though, okay? But he, he can do anything he wants, anything he purposes to do. But the idea, though, is to be engaged in what God lays out for your life as the life he intends for you all the time. Just do that. Do whatever you find. You think about the Sermon on the Mount. It's about being in Christ. Well, the Sermon on Mission is about being sent by Christ. So where's your field? We all have a field. We don't all work in the same field. Where's your field? Where's the harvest field? Where has God planted you? Wherever he's planted you, bloom right there. Bloom right there. And don't just look and, and, and feel compassion and then the desire to do it, but show compassion. There's plenty of people who have compassion. They don't, they don't all act on it. They say, well, I'm a very compassionate person. Really? Show me. Biblical compassion inspires mission that is kind of like physical therapy. And a lot of us have been through physical therapy before. Physical therapists are... Uh, are the type that get glee from making you hurt. They take a special pleasure in making you hurt because they want you to get better. And they say, oh, this is all for you to get better. And they got a smile on their face. And you're like, I hate you. <laughs> but it's true. 
They're in the helping profession. And so they hurt you to help you. Sometimes helping needs to hurt. Through pain, you are healed. It's not easy to be compassionate like Jesus. It's not easy. Jesus is Jesus. But he is also living in believers. It will cost you. And when you want to see the many needs, and you see many needs and you want to meet them all, you want to even meet just one, it's going to cost you. Um, think about the kind of Bible, Bible studies that are going on. Well, you're in a Bible study with people, there's people, and the people have problems. And so you're going to be encountering people with problems. That's going to be painful unless you want to ignore the problems. You're sitting with people and listening and listening to their struggles, not going to be easy unless you want to ignore that. You've got to go somewhere out of your comfort zone. And, and the idea of being merciful is not easy. The, at this church, we have a caring fund. We pool our money together to help people in need. There's other ways to do that. Help people in financial need. We've got a caring team. There's plenty of ways to do that, to, to help people in physical need. We're talking about the, the free-for-all that's coming up. Free household items, free food, free, free fun and games, free... Uh, job seminar on how to how to be prepared to go and, and interview and things like that but all the people that'll come and all the people you see and the people you sit with and the people you you observe they yeah they all have temporary needs but they also have eternal needs that go beyond the temporary and sometimes you got to meet the temporary one to get to the to them to listen to the answer to their eternal need the most eternally significant but as we meet the pressing need, they may see their greater spiritual need. But a true church is a missionary church. And I don't mean just sending out lots of missionaries. A true church is a missionary church from here, there, and everywhere. Why? Well, because of the lost condition of the world. Why? Because of the love of God, the compassionate love of God. Why? Because of the Great Commission coupled with the many opportunities God gives us to share the life-giving gospel. And by the way, you see all those things here in this passage. You see the lost condition of the world, uh, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That was the good shepherd seeing that implication and knowing what he came to do and then saying, okay, I'm going to send people out. There's the Great Commission. And he's felt compassion for them. That grace, our stated purpose, is to worship God, build up believers, and reach others for Christ. They all go together. They're all interconnected. We exist to glorify God by building a gospel-centered community, to equip believers to serve Him, that proclaims and displays the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What motivates our mission-mindedness must never be a feeling of superiority. Oh, uh, we have something they don't have and we need to go give them what we have. That, that, that's not it. It can never be discussed because people are caught in, in sinful lifestyles. It's got to be the fact that God loves them and he has compassion for them. It's the work of the gospel where we're sent by God to help people by bringing and living the gospel. Think of John 3.16 for a minute. It doesn't say, for God was so disgusted with the world over their sin 
It doesn't say, well, God was, was so filled with wrath because of what they did. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. They would not perish from their sin and the wrath poured out on it by a just and merciful God. But the idea is what, what, is, what, is, what is instigating it, what is inspiring it, is compassion. We who have been forgiven many sins, people such as myself, find it easy to love Jesus because we know from what he has saved us. We know where we've come from. And we know where we were headed when, before Jesus intervened. God had mercy on us by planning and providing a mediator. He sent his only son. He crushed him with the wrath we deserved for our sins, even the ones we will commit today. And we live with hearts full of amazement at the one who died in our place, satisfying God's wrath, securing our justification and the forgiveness of all of our sins. Christ-centered people living in a hostile world always know they need to come back to the cross. Always. To the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign Savior who purchased us with his blood. But at times, our compassion wanes because our love grows cold. That is why we always need to rehearse gospel truth. The more we retell ourselves gospel truth, the more compassionate for others we become. I'll close with this, and as the worship team comes up, think of Paul rehearsing the great gospel truths in Romans, especially Romans chapters 5 through 8, about right standing with God through Christ, about ultimate freedom from sin that God accomplishes in the lives of believers, of the no condemnation for those who are in Christ, the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he thinks of his own people. And in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, he is so burdened for others, he pours out his heart, and compassionate evangelism results. See, as we celebrate the gospel, God inspires in us compassion for the lost so that we would go to the lost and share how they can be found. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good and your compassion is great beyond our ability to tell. Lord, inspire in us true compassion. I pray in Jesus' name.